If you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 5. We're going to finish chapter 5 today. We'll be reading verses 17 through 42. Today we're going to be look at, looking at the very first time the apostles faced more violent persecution. Up until this point, they've been told not to preach. They've been brought before uh, the Sanhedrin. But at this point, not only is there going to be prison, but there will also be beatings. And not just for Peter and John, but for all the apostles. And we'll see their response. We will see how they react to this change of tide. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guards and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Uh Uh-oh, that's not in the text. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this miracle, not just of an angel bringing the apostles out of prison, 
but of your gospel going forth with such power and your spirit going forth and changing hearts and changing lives. We thank you that you have preserved your church for centuries to this day. God, I pray that the words that encouraged the people then would encourage your people today. God, as we share the good news of the gospel, I pray that we would do so with boldness because we realize that any opposition is not against us, but is against God Himself. So, God, I I pray that our focus would not be ourselves, would not just be uh, who we are or even sometimes our feelings, but that our priority would be the Creator and His Savior, whom He sent to reveal the Father and the Spirit transforming and changing lives. Please fix our eyes on you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Anytime you do hard work, at the time it never seems worth it. To be able to complete your hard work, you have to look at something else. If you focus on your work, you'll grow to be miserable. And oftentimes you won't finish what you're doing. Think about it in terms of exercise. If you're a coach or if you've played on a team... Your coaches don't tell you how hard they're going to push you. All they tell you is this is going to make you stronger, right? That's what they tell you. Who knows? But as you're going, as you're playing, all you can think about is the end goal. I will be stronger when that game happens. I want my coach to put me in whatever it is. If you focus on the pain or the misery, you'll quit. But if you look at the end goal, you will succeed. You see this in military training. Or sometimes just in exercise. Or even study. If you focus, when you're exhausted and you're studying and all you think about is, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, I just want to go to bed. Uh, Many of our students, I'm sure, feel that way sometimes. Then you'll just quit. But if you realize, I'm looking for that diploma. I want to do well in class tomorrow. Whatever the end goal is, it helps you to push through the pain. It helps you to push through the misery. In 1952, there was a woman named Florence Chadwick. She decided to swim from Catalina Island to Los Angeles. It's a 26-mile swim, something I will never do. As she was swimming, the fog set in, and the more she swam, she just couldn't see. She was getting exhausted. There were two boats that were going alongside her. And finally, she quit and jumped into the boat, and they realized that she was less than a mile from the shore. She hadn't been able to see it. Less than two months later, she broke the world record. Crushed it. And when they asked her what was different, she said that she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind while she swam. She was not paying attention to the misery, or the fog, or the pain, or the exhaustion. She was looking to the end goal. As we're looking at this passage today, when we share the good news, and when we look at the apostles sharing the good news of new life, that's the way it's described here, we should do it with boldness. Because any opposition that we come to, anyone that's pushing against the gospel going forth, is actually pushing against God, not against us. Because He wants the gospel to go forth. So keep that in mind as we look at this passage. The, the context, remember, this is the birth of the church. We, we talked about the three summary statements about church life, about service, but also about discipline and how there are some church members who died because they did not realize the severity of sin. Also realize the Roman Empire is surrounding them. That's, that's the political arena. And, and the Jewish people were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for someone to come and to free them from the Romans. That's what they had been looking for. But Jesus Christ, the Messiah, when He came, He wasn't just coming to free one people group from the Romans. It was much greater. He was coming to free His people from the slavery of sin. 
And we're going to see that tension there between misunderstanding the purpose of the Messiah. So if you still have your Bibles, please keep them open. And look with me at verses 17 to the beginning of 21. Here we just see gospel opposition. You're going to see the arrest and then release of the apostles. In verses 17 and 18, you see the high priests and the Sadducees. We've been talking about them since chapter 3 and chapter 4. They are the religious leaders. And you see, they feel that their authority has been challenged. And what does it say in those verses? That they feel jealous. So jealous, in fact, that they decide to arrest these men. And in the past, we've seen Peter and John get arrested. At this point, all of the apostles are arrested. Now realize what they are jealous about. They are not jealous for the kingdom of God, but for their own name. They have clouded their thinking. They have convinced themselves that they are serving God. And so they put the apostles in the public prison. This is a public warning to everyone. If you follow Jesus, you could end up just like them. That's what's happening. And then in verse 19 and 20, it's almost so short that you almost miss it. You see the angel rescue them and then give them directions. What's astounding here is God's absolute power. You see, the leadership, this Sanhedrin, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, can do nothing against God. They're powerless in comparison to God. Did the prison stop God? Absolutely not. But what's amazing is it says that the doors were open. But if you look at verse 23 and 24, they're locked and the guards are in place. Somehow the apostles came out and the guards had no idea. Is God in control of physical matter? Is there anything that can stop him? And so, once they are freed, what does this angel say to them? He sets them free, look at that verse, to speak the words of this, in some, in some translations it says, of this new life, this new way. That's how the, the life of the Christian is described. You have a new life, and you're supposed to talk about it. These apostles were supposed to talk to everyone they could about this new life. You see, they were not set free because God was getting them out of trouble. In fact, we're going to see them get rearrested and then beaten. And in the end, every single one of these apostles, except for John, will die of persecution. So they weren't just being set free so that they could be more comfortable. They were being set free to teach and preach the Gospels. And look at the beginning of verse 21. Did they wait? Did they sleep in that morning and say, man, last night was a rough night? I'm going to get my rest so that I can go preach tomorrow. At daybreak, they go to the temple to preach. They weren't going to waste a second in obeying their command. What I want us to realize is there will be opposition when we proclaim the gospel. When you share the good news of this new life about the author of life. But what we can realize also is that God is sovereign over our sin as we saw last week. But also, he's sovereign over the opposition, which we're looking at today. And we're going to look at that tonight in Psalm 2 when we study it and what we read earlier. God is in control of the nations. Nothing that is happening politically, nothing that is happening worldwide takes him by surprise. And we see that here. Then in the next group of verses, we see the gospel power. First, we saw gospel opposition. Here, we see gospel power. And it surprises the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 21 through 24. They haven't even realized that the apostles escaped. It's gone unnoticed because the doors are still locked, the guards are still in place, and the term there, that it was closed with all security. I mean, literally, the guards are standing out there feeling pretty good. They're feeling smug. I mean, they're, they're going to get their bonus because they did their job. 
And then when the door, they, the guards are perplexed. They had done their job, and the religious leaders are perplexed. Literally, they didn't know what to do. And the difficulty here, if you remember the different groups, we have the Pharisees and we have the Sadducees. Now, that wouldn't matter, except the Sadducees don't think that God does miracles. The Sadducees believed God didn't rise people from the dead, and so he certainly couldn't have brought them out of prison. So suddenly, the Sadducees are thinking, wait a second, what do we do with our worldview here? The Pharisees, on the other hand, are thinking, what has happened? And so we see here the gospel, the gospel going forth and people being perplexed by it. Also, if you look at verse 25, it shows the apostles obeying the angel and obeying God's command. They're, the words of the angel's command in the verse, the verse 25 are exactly the same. They're standing, they're teaching to the people. Each part of, of, of the command of the angel in verse 18. They have immediate and exact obedience. And boldness makes the opposition pause. They literally don't know what to do. So in verse 26, we see the apostles rearrested, but they do it without force. You can almost just imagine them coming gently and saying, please come with us. They don't make, remember, before they made a public declaration, they put them in public prison, trying to show publicly that you better not be a Christian. But here they do it quietly, privately, because they, what does it say here? They are afraid of the people. You see, the people have realized, when these apostles come, we are seeing paralyzed people walk. We're, we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing people healed. We're seeing demons cast out. What these guys are doing is good. They're great things. And so even the guards are afraid to arrest them in public. The, but the apostles submit obediently. And though the captain of the guard senses there might, there might be trouble with the, with the arrest, so he does it quietly, what's amazing is their preaching has brought respect, whether it's the guards, whether it's the people. All of a sudden, people respect their message and how they've delivered it. What I want us to see here is that the gospel is stronger than political leadership. We see that in Psalm 2. But also the gospel and the changes it brings is better than any alternative. Safety, comfort, cash, power. You see, their preaching has changed lives. Not just, it's, it's the quality of life. When you follow Jesus, your quality of life improves. Though you are persecuted. There's a contrast there. These apostles from prison could say, my life is better than it used to be. Can you say that about your walk with Christ? But third, the gospel changes lives, and so it's worth sharing. And so that's why we see them obeying and even putting their life on the line because they realize other people's eternity depends upon me sharing this gospel, upon me sharing this message. And so the next section we see the gospel offense and strength in verses 27 to 32. The gospel offends people. I hope you realize this. It has edges. There's times that Jesus would preach, and when he preached, people would leave because they realized, we cannot follow this man. And we're going to see this here. You see, in verses 27 and 28, the questions asked by the Sanhedrin show their guilt. They don't even ask them, how did you get out of, out of jail? I would have asked. If I'd been part of the Sanhedrin, I would say, how did you get out? What happened? They don't even ask that. Rather, they point back to their prior command. Number one, don't preach. But also, they focus on the fact that they talk so much about Jesus. Look at this. It says, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. All, they don't want to carry the guilt of having killed Jesus. But if you look back to Matthew 23, verse 35, and then 27 to 25, they say, when they're before Pilate, they say, let his blood be upon us. You see, they were guilty of Jesus' blood. 
They were guilty. So what the apostles are saying is absolutely true. And what's amazing here, the Pharisees in this section, they don't even say the name of Jesus. They rather say that man. But Jerusalem is now filled with their teachings. Think about last week. We talked about how there were some people that were being filled with the Holy Spirit. Or, and, and for Ananias and Sapphira, how they were filled with lies. Here, they talk about how Jerusalem is filled with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 29 through 32, we see Peter's response. He remains consistent throughout his sermons. And we're going to see that he will remain consistent throughout the rest of Acts. First of all, he calls them to understand the power of God. And how do you understand the power of God? Through the death of Christ. You killed him by hanging on a tree. But hanging him on a tree was the crime that you saved for the worst of the worst, according to Deuteronomy 21-22. And yet they did it for Jesus Christ. But Jesus did not remain dead. They also point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says there that God raised Jesus from the dead. That phrase, God raised Jesus from the dead, uh, has appeared in Acts so far four times. And it will appear a bunch more as it goes along. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is where we as Christians find hope. And so they point to that resurrection. But they also point to the exaltation of Christ. Look at what they say here. They say that He has been exalted to God's right hand. It echoes Psalm 110 verse 1 where it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, God has been, sorry, Jesus has been made both leader and prince and savior of Israel. But why has he been made prince of Israel? Is it to kick out the Romans? Is it to squelch opposition? No. It's for repentance and forgiveness of sins. And lastly, they point to the witness of the Holy Spirit. You see, the apostles have seen, they've lived with Christ, and the Spirit is witnessing through the apostles. Here's what's amazing. The word for spirit in the Hebrew, ruach, was God's presence. It was His breath in the Old Testament. And they're showing, just as God was with His people then, God is with His people today. Peter is able to show whom they're opposing. They're not just opposing men. They're opposing God Himself. And that's why the apostles have ignored the warning of the leaders. God is overwhelmingly on their side. And so they cannot keep the good news of this life to themselves. They have to share it. They have no choice. Is that the case for you? You have to share this good news. I can't deny my Christ. He means everything to me. He is my reason for living. Can you say that? The next couple verses show the gospel through the opposition. In verses 33 through 40, you see, a, you see a, a history lesson of some senses. First in verse 33, you see the level of anger. They, we saw how they were jealous before. At this point, they're so mad, they're saying, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him right now. And that's what the Sanhedrin has decided to do, which is the danger of hatred. And I want to pause here for just a moment. Jesus showed that anger can take you so far that you can grow to want to murder the person. And he compares it to murder. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26, Jesus is, is it's, it's, right, it's during the Sermon on the Mount. What he says is, you've heard it said to people long ago, do not murder. But anyone who, can, who, who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, these are Jesus' words. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, who is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. 
Settle matters quickly with your adversary. And then it goes on. That's exactly what's happened to the Sanhedrin. First, they were just angry. Then they grew to hate Jesus Christ, and so they killed him. Here, we say they started out just angry at the apostles. But they've gone, their anger has gone so far that it's grown into hatred, and hatred that they want to kill them. And so what it says in, the, in, the, in, that, in that verse, what it says is that they are, they are split in rage. There's other parts where the, the, it talks about how the gospel cuts people to the heart, and so they're transformed and they're changed. Have you ever had that when somebody starts sings a sermon, somebody sings a song, sorry, sings a sermon, huh, that'd be great. Uh, somebody sings a song, somebody preaches a sermon, somebody gives you encouragement, and it cuts you to the heart. And you realize that really made an impact in your life. And, and it cuts you to the heart to improve. Here, it's the opposite. They are cut to the heart, but they are literally cut to the heart in rage and in anger. Instead of being pierced to the heart towards repentance, they've gone their own way and refused to obey the call of the Spirit. They are just furious. And they will not see things any other way. Until Gamaliel stands up. God uses someone from within the Sanhedrin. He uses a Pharisee to, sh- to change the shift of this discussion. He stands up, and first he dismisses the apostles. And then he stands up and tries to show a lesson from history. What's interesting, in verse 34, Gamaliel is the only rabbi that's mentioned. He's also the teacher who, will, who teaches Paul, Saul, who later writes all of the epistles. But some people think that Paul was probably here. Regardless, this is his teacher who is here. And it gives us insight into the wisdom that this man had in his learning. He dismisses the apostles and addresses the group in private. In verse 35, he says, Be careful, pay attention before you act on your emotions. How many times have I wished somebody would have told me that? Don't act on your emotions. Take your time. Think through what you're about to do. In verse 36, he points them to the rebellion of Thutis and 400 members, and then he was killed. And in verse 37, the rebellion of Judas the Galilean, who this man had been against the census and the tax of Quirinius during the birth of Jesus. So while Jesus was born, there was a big rebellion going on around him. There was somebody who was leading a rebellion, which also ended when this man died. This idea behind what he says is Jesus died, so this revolt, this rebellion, these apostles, it'll probably die out as well. Now, why are, they dis- why are they describing this? Here's what I want you to understand. At this time period, for the Jewish people, rebellion characterized who they were. I want you to stop and think for just a second. Let's pretend that the United States of America had been conquered by, I don't know, let's just say Canada. And Canada came and decided to tax the United States and that if you wanted to do anything, you had to write to the Canadian government, and they were in control of the United States of America. How well would that go over with the American people? Not very well, especially in the South, right? We are known for, for we, don't, we don't like people telling us what to do. We have a long history. The Jews were the exact same way. The Jews were the exact same way. You see, the Romans had come in and were controlling Judea. But in 164 B.C., so 150 years before Jesus, there had been a Maccabean revolt. They'd, they'd driven out the Romans, and they had gotten Jerusalem back, and they'd rededicated the temple. Do you know when Jews celebrate Hanukkah? That's what they're celebrating, how they'd reconquered Jerusalem, and they were protecting it against the Romans. And they had a civil war for the next hundred years. And where, they, where, they, where sometimes Romans were in control, sometimes the Jews were in control. And the Jewish, in, in the history of the Romans, the Jewish were known for, the Jews were known for being people who were rebellious people. Then, 
So throughout, from 164, through the time of Jesus, through the time of the apostles, there was constantly rebellion. There was constantly fighting. There was constantly this people wanting to rise up. And sometimes they would follow this man, and sometimes they would follow this man, but it would always peter out. And, and initially, the apostles of Jesus were hoping that this would be the Messiah. This was going to be the leader that was going to break the oppression of the Romans, and that's what they were hoping for. And it never came. Then in 70 A.D., so 40 years after Jesus, a revolt came up. And for a couple years, they controlled Jerusalem. They, in fact, they even beat Rome's 12th legion. But then Rome got really angry, and they took things really seriously. And they put together three different legions who were sent down to beat the rebellion. And in August of 70 A.D., Jerusalem and everything in it was absolutely destroyed. So about 30 years before this, it was completely razed to the ground. The temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. Everything in it was, it was absolutely killed. What's amazing is this mindset of rebellion was constantly in their thoughts. And they were looking for somebody who was going to help them to rise above this oppression and rise above this Roman rule. And Gamaliel uses these other rebellions that hadn't worked to show, look, these hadn't worked. If, 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 if this guy was the Messiah, don't fight against God, but he probably isn't, so don't worry about it. And so he uses this history lesson, and, and the people see, see the wisdom in it. They see, we don't want to oppose God, and those other ones died out, so it probably will as well. God uses the opposition to show the key difference between these other rebellions who are seeking political freedom and this new rebellion, so to speak. I don't think it's a rebellion, but just for the rhetorical sake. Spiritual freedom. You see what they say here. If, then, if they are human, then they will fail. But, just in case, if this is God, they cannot fail. Gamaliel still refuses to join the group, but he does not persecute them because they are different. And so, we see an echo of Psalm 2 here. The nations find themselves fighting against God. And, and, and Gamaliel is showing that it's unwise to fight against God. So he says, don't fight against these apostles. Do not oppress them. And so that Sanhedrin is, is persuaded. So what do they do? They don't just let them go. First, they flog them, which, according to Deuteronomy 25.3, probably meant 40, 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes uh, with a whip. Uh, to me, that doesn't sound as just let them go. But hey, you know, what can I say? Uh, so they let them go after they've been beaten, and they say, do not speak in the name of Jesus. And they're released. What's interesting here, God did not deliver them from punishment. That's one thing I want us to notice. But also, the Sanhedrin recognizes the power of Christ. They say, do not speak in his name. And so they are released, again, for the second time in two days. Even the opposition is being used by God to free the apostles and display the difference this message had. One, not of political and civil life, but of spiritual freedom. God uses even the opposition for truth. And so we see finally, just in the last two verses, the gospel paradox. What do they say? They say, we have been honored by dishonor. This is sort of like an oxymoron. You know, if we talk about jumbo shrimp or hot ice, it's, it's a phrase that doesn't make sense. The two are opposites. But here it says that they've been honored by dishonor. It's two truths in tension. Sort of like what we've been talking about, human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Here, it's the honor of dishonor. Culturally, this was an honor-shame culture, so this would not have made sense at all. But what do they say? We rejoice. We have joy in our suffering. And that goes Romans 5. Rejoice in our suffering, because suffering produces character. 
I'm sorry, suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. James 1 talks about the same thing, and they they are so glad that they have been found worthy of suffering disgrace. They are proud of their shame because it's for the name of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despisable things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Take comfort, God's people. We are being called foolish. We are being called weak. We are being called lowly. Take pride in that. Throughout the Bible, God turn, turns culture on its head. You see, the cross was shameful. It's the most shameful way to die. But God uses it to exalt His Son to a name that is above every name. Prison is shameful, but if it's done for the name of Christ, it has power, and it came to have honor. In verse 42, we see teaching and preaching every day at the temple and at various homes. This did not even slow down the gospel preaching. What's amazing, as the centuries went on, the Roman government, not just the Jews, but the Roman government would start uh, killing Christians in arenas. And what they would do, it was a public killing, hoping that the people around would notice, these are Christians, and this is what will happen to you if you are a Christian. And so they hoped that it would stop the spread of Christianity. You know what happened? The opposite you see, because these, these martyrs, these people who were about to die for their faith, would use this stage, would use this arena to preach the gospel. Right before they died, they would warn people against their lifestyle, and they would encourage them to come to know Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus. And we see in the next chapter, somebody who not only will be chosen as a deacon, but as we heard, who will die for their faith. But I want, us to, I want to leave us with the words from a woman who died in 203, so about 150 years after this. Her name was Perpetua. She was somebody who had, was wanting to join the church. She actually was pregnant when she was arrested. She had her child in prison. I want you to think about how hard childbirth is. Then think about how hard childbirth would be in prison. Not only so, as soon as that baby was born, that child was taken away from her. And there she was in prison. She hadn't been in church for very long. And, 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 and her father begged her, please renounce your faith. Please don't. You don't even know this, Jesus. Why do you follow after him? What it talks about is when they were brought out, they spoke to the mob and they warned them of God's judgment, stressing the joy that they would have in their suffering. And then as, as the animals were released to kill them, Perpetua began to sing a psalm to Jesus as to God. The crowd stopped cheering, cheering during her death. Before that, they'd been cheering, but as soon as they see her about to die, there was a silence because they realized injustice recognized justice, and they saw this is not right. The spectacle left the spectators unsettled. Why? She was different. Honor and dishonor. There's somewhere that it talks about how the blood of the martyrs or those who die for their faith is the seed of the church. You see, people saw Christians, and they remained steadfast. These apostles, these believers, they didn't focus on the pressure of the opposition around them. All but one of these apostles would eventually die of persecution. John is the only one who survived, and he was persecuted plenty. He just refused to die. So what is my encouragement to you? I would encourage you to look at their example, to look at the apostles' example, to look at Christ's example. You see, there is opposition to the good news of life. Things, every time you try to share the gospel, every time, time you try to help with good news, every time you try to help with children's church, with kids' nights, something will come up to try to stop you. There will be opposition. But what are we called to do anyway? Share this gospel. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ. You have new life, and you are called to share that with others. 
But I would also call you to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. We see that in this, the example of these, these apostles. It will get you through. If they focused on their suffering and if they focused on their pain, they never would have made it through. But instead, what do they look to? They look to Jesus Christ. They look to the hope of the resurrection. In the same way, that helped them to understand the force of the gospel. It will help you to understand the force of the gospel. In the midst of unsettling times when we don't know what to do, I found myself wanting to insert part of what's happened this past week into the sermon. All I can tell you, look to Christ. We have a sin problem in this world. We have a sin problem in this nation. We've heard plenty of coaches, plenty of players telling us this over and over, so I don't need to say it again. But if we look to Christ, He has the power to transform lives. Nothing else does. So I encourage you, fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness that we see through these apostles. God, and even the people who came after them. I'm humbled. Every time I I meet opposition, so many times I take the offenses personally, uh, or I get angry myself, but God, we need to realize any opposition to the gospel going forth is not opposition against us, it's against the God of the universe. We don't need to be afraid. Rather, we need to look to you, and we need to persevere. God, you have preserved us, and for that we thank you. God, you have kept your church here in this country from violent persecution. We pray for your church around the world who is facing very difficult persecution. We pray that you would give the Christians boldness, that you would give them words to speak. And God, if ever our day comes, I pray that we would be able to speak the gospel boldly because you have loved us. It's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen.